CTA ridership is recovering fast, especially downtown. But even with the boost, trains and buses are carrying fewer than half the riders as they were pre-pandemic. And Crane's commercial real estate reporters Danny Ecker and Albie Galoon join me to talk about the state of office and industrial space and about how more space is in demand for third-party logistics firms. Amazon is a major disruptive force, and I don't think retail is going to go away, but there's definitely going to be less demand for space going forward. If you look at some areas of especially the suburban office market that are doing well, it's actually the areas that have access to good retail. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, July 12th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. All right, so Danny and Albie, you both cover different aspects of commercial real estate. Danny, you tend to focus a lot on office spaces. Albie, you tend to focus on industrial spaces and warehouses. But it seems like there's an interesting moment where these two areas are are kind of colliding. A lot of questions around the future of what office space even is right now and what it will be in the future. And then ongoing expansion for third-party logistics companies. Where do we even start with this of where all this kind of collides? Danny, let's start with you. Yeah, well, so we knew, you know, and we've known for a long time that you know, the, the rise of online shopping, uh, which was accelerated during the pandemic, has been this longstanding driver of demand for warehouse space, you know, places to store and distribute goods that people buy online. Um, but what is newer to this equation is that the companies that are growing because of this, that help with shipping and logistics are also growing and they are taking a lot more office space because of that. And it's not necessarily just because they're hiring a lot of people, which they are, and that's a key driver, but also because unlike some industries, what a lot of these companies do is is really essential to be done in person. You know, it's not it's not a given really anymore that just because a company is going on a big hiring spree that uh, they're going to need a ton of more office space to make room for them. It's it, there's there's the rise of remote work and companies are finding ways to you know have more people but not necessarily uh, need more space to accommodate them. So what we're seeing in the last you know few months here especially is this flurry of leasing activity of office space downtown from these. Uh, third-party logistics companies, that, which are basically freight brokers. These are the you know companies that connect shippers and carriers uh, for a fee, effectively. And then also a lot of the tech companies that serve these companies that have software that uh, helps uh, monitor and, and track shipments that are based in Chicago, because Chicago has this reputation, long-standing reputation of being this logistics hub. The, a lot of these companies are uh, getting a lot of venture capital, and they're growing and so we've had uh, a few leases get signed over the past few months, and 
and there's a lot more. There's, uh, from what I understand, uh, more than half a million square feet of of tenants in the market, basically, that are in this transportation logistics sector looking for office space. And that that really, you know, this is just, it, it belies this whole idea of companies cutting back on their space, which is a lot of companies are doing. Uh, this is an area where companies are looking for more office space. So that's, it's a, it's one of the rare bright spots of the pandemic for, uh, for office landlords. And then Albie, I would, I would turn this to you because you and I have talked a ton about retail and how that, how, as things have moved to more of an e-commerce model during the pandemic, you know, we've talked about that impact, but we've also talked a lot about warehouse space. So where does this move over into your beat? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Danny talks about how this is a bright spot in the office market, which, you know, it has, there's a lot of uncertainty right now because we don't know with, with this whole work from home trend and how that's going to work in the post pandemic era. Industrial has been a bright spot kind of throughout the pandemic because these, you know, e-commerce and third party logistics companies have, have been expanding. And, you know, Amazon has just been gobbling up tons of space over the last year and a half because their business has been booming. The whole you know, e-commerce trend accelerated during the pandemic as you know, housebound consumers, they couldn't go to the store and buy stuff. So, so they, bought, they bought things online. And you know, I think as consumers are getting trained to buy a lot more products online. So that's really the dynamic behind what's going on in the industrial market. It doesn't explain the entire industrial market, but it covers a broader geographical area because, you know, Danny, when he talks about office space, these companies are expanding in downtown Chicago mostly. But in, um, in, when it comes to the industrial market and warehouses, this is happening throughout the greater Chicago area in places like Joliet, Bolingbrook, Romeoville. And it's also happening in the city of Chicago too. You have Amazon is kind of moving into the city opening warehouses in places like Pullman and Gage Park. And so what's interesting to me is what this means from an employment standpoint. Obviously, it's a, re- it's a, it's a real estate story, but the numbers when, when you look at them are, are pretty mind-blowing. I mean, Amazon in Illinois added 15,000 people to its workforce in the state last year. And in May, it announced it was going to add another 3,800 people. So it's, I don't know for sure, but I, I, I have a strong belief that Amazon now is the second largest private sector employer in the Chicago area. And it's only going to get bigger. Yeah, definitely. Do you happen to know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, do you happen to know what the square footage count is for Amazon in the Chicago area right now? I would say it's well above 15 million square feet off the top of my head. I don't know what the latest number is. It's kind of a moving target. They're constantly in motion buying land or leasing warehouses. So they have to be, um, if not the largest industrial tenant in, in the Chicago area, definitely in the top three or four. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like at least once a week you're writing about something about Amazon for sure. And so, I mean, to me, this says that behavior has changed. I feel like the pandemic kind of moved it forward so, so quickly, so rapidly that perhaps there's no going back. So what does that mean for retailers then? Well, it's, it's more complicated than a lot of people make it out to be. Obviously 
Amazon and other um, you know e-commerce companies are just chipping away at brick and mortar retail sales, and that's going to continue. That accelerated during the pandemic. Um, there are definitely, as you point out, there's no turning back. But you know, there are a lot of a lot of retailers out there that are not as vulnerable to competition from e-commerce. Like, I mean, think about grocery stores. I mean, they have been very, very strong over the last year and a half. Now, I mean, I guess you could argue e-commerce could be a threat. People, more people are buying stuff online, but that seems to be, and it's it's um, part of a broader category of essential retail, which are you know retail service retailers and also restaurants are another um, are another type of retail tenant that landlords these days really want to uh, attract because you know that's that's one air you know part of the market that's less vulnerable to competition from e-commerce. So when it comes to you know retailing, landlords and retailers are just going to have to figure out how to survive in this new world. And, you know, it's Amazon is a major disruptive force and I don't think retail is going to go away, but there's definitely going to be less demand for space going forward. That's like one of those things that I just find interesting also just, you know, talking about the office market and writing about it so much. And as Albie's point about essential retail is, you know, if you look at some areas of, especially the suburban office market that are doing well, it's actually the areas that have access to good retail. You know, it's areas around Oak Brook Center Mall and Woodfield Mall and some of these spots that it's it's kind of this irony, I suppose, that these, these companies that want to find office space want to be near what is effectively just bricks and mortar retail despite the struggles of it, but it's all about what kind of retail it is, as Albie's pointing out. It's, you know, they want those amenities and things like restaurants and places that you have to actually go to physically to, to shop. Um, those are considered um, amenities that, that uh, landlords want to be affiliated with uh, these days. Uh, office landlords want to be affiliated with because, um, you know, they, they're obviously focused on what can we do to make sure people want to physically come to offices again. Uh, so there's an interesting overlap there between office and retail. I'll throw another, uh, another story into this discussion, which kind of helps illustrate what's going on. As we know, Arlington International Racecourse is, is on the market and the Bears are, uh, you know, bid on it. And there's a possibility that they could build a new football stadium there. But uh, there are other parties that have bid on it, just traditional real estate developers. And, you know, when I, I, I've, I did some reporting on this last week and I talked to developers and brokers and w- was asking them about what the highest and best use of that property is. It's a 326 acre parcel, which is massive. I mean, this is a kind of a once in a generation opportunity. And most of them said, yeah, that would be great for warehouses. That would be great for warehouses. But but nobody said, yeah, let's build a big shopping mall there. No one is going to build a, a, um, a massive shopping mall. I mean, shopping malls are shrinking or going away entirely. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think you bring up Arlington. I think that's a fascinating story. Your reporting in the past week or so was has really been so interesting about, um, you know, what, what that could be. And it just kind of prompts you to think about what 
what 300 plus acres of like a parcel that big could do. I mean, I, I remember in the, in the story you wrote about it, there was uh, somebody commented about how the bears are kind of the exciting option, right? But, and we don't think about warehouses being necessarily the most exciting option, but it might go that way. I mean, indeed it might, if space is in that kind of demand, it, it perhaps it will go that way. Well, it's, a, it's possible that there will be some industrial or warehouse space there, but the village of Arlington Heights has made it clear that they don't want the entire thing to be a big industrial park. So I don't see that happening, but um, I could see some there. So Danny, I want to I go back to you. We, we kind of started off by talking about subleasing and office space. Earlier in the pandemic cycle, you were reporting a lot of office spaces that were entering the secondary market. Has that sort of tapered off? Is that still holding strong? Are people rethinking their rethinking or, or what's the latest there? There's just been a lot of demand for the sublease offerings that are out there for a number of reasons. I mean, we've, as I was reporting in the last couple of weeks, a good portion of the deals that have gotten done over the last few weeks for new office space have been subleases. And one of the reasons is that a lot of the space that is available for sublease, first of all, there's just a lot of it. But second of all, it's not really, you know, second generation outdated space like maybe it has been historically because it's not like companies are, you know, have been in some of these offices for a long time and then have said, well, you know, we're moving on and we still have some lease term left. So, you know, maybe we can get some uh, someone to take the rest of our, our lease and, and, uh, and, and save some money there. These are companies that have said, well, look, we just we're, we have more people working remotely and, and, and we expect that to continue and so let's see if we can, you know, cut 20% of our space or some portion of it or, you know, putting all of it up, up uh, for sublease. And a lot of it's been built out with a lot of money and really some impressive amenities over the past few years. So there's a lot of really good deals to be had out there uh, for companies that um, are looking to uh, either have to make a decision about their office space or are looking to change or upgrade their space. There's some interesting sublease opportunities out there. So uh, it, it's it's not really clear whether... That's going to continue, I guess, as we get deeper into this year and next year and we see more companies have to make leasing decisions. But it's just interesting to see. I mean, this was something that it, it's, it's sort of a mixed blessing, really, for, for office landlords downtown, because on one hand, it's great news that companies are saying, yes, we need office space. Uh, you know, we, maybe we thought we'd be all remote for good, but you know what? We, we really value in-person offices. But you know, this thorn in landlords uh, side is going to be the sublease market for some time here because there is so much uh, inventory on the secondary market. And recently that that surge of sublease availability has sort of flattened. You know, we just saw it going up and up and up really since the pandemic started. And it, it could go down, it could stay flat for a while, or it could go up. I mean, we really don't know. Once companies start to get back into offices, especially the second half of this year and as we get into next year, I think then you're going to see companies have a lot more confidence in how much space they need. I mean, you can guess now, but once people are really back in offices in a more regular way, you'll start to understand, okay, you know what? We do need all the space that we had before, or you know what? We need half of it and we need even less than we thought we needed. So we could see another wave. So you mentioned the thorn in the side for office landlords. Albie, what is the what is the biggest challenge facing industrial landlords right now? Deve- developers are building like crazy to keep up with demand. And there's always the risk that they could overbuild. Um, you know, developers are notorious for getting carried away. I don't see that happening quite yet, but I'd say that's a risk. 
you know, it'll be interesting to see where else demand comes from when it comes to industrial. You know, the econ- the the economy is recovering obviously very vigorously, and so e-commerce and logistics companies have carried the load during the pandemic. It'll be interesting to see if we see a broader uh, expansion among industrial tenants and see them signing more leases. What are the most important things to to watch and what will you be watching most closely when it comes to third-party logistics companies, Danny? You know, I guess how, how much longer this this growth period will last for some of these companies. I mean, it's such a fragmented industry. There's There's so many uh, software companies that have popped up that have grown and have gotten a lot of funding as well as these freight brokerage companies and and you know lucky for Chicago there a lot of them are based here but you know will we see some consolidation among those or, or will we see some of those companies get rolled up with uh, by private equity firms for example over the next few years because the the valuations of these companies are have skyrocketed and you know, I, I think that's going to be uh, something to watch because, you know, uh, while we do have so much demand for office space, again, looking at it from the angle I am uh, this week, it's it's a lot of different companies. Well, if we do see some consolidation that you would typically see in an industry, what does that mean? Do we do we does, does some of the, the gains in office uh, leasing to erode uh, because you have, um, you know, companies that are, you know, combined with other companies? So. We'll see. I think that's that's uh, something I'll keep an eye on. Certainly, uh, as we as we look to this, uh, you know, what what is really one of the strongest uh, sectors for office demand right now. Yeah. Well, and and I think that kind of leads to another thought, and that is, I mean, the term third party logistics that covers a wide swath of stuff. I mean, that's a lot of things. So it would it would not surprise me if we did see some consolidation there, or even that kind of splintering into subcategories of, of what all that covers. Cause that's just so many different right, things. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's a very, I mean, third party logistics, these are, again, these are think of like coyote logistics and echo global logistics and uh, redwood logistics. I mean, there's, there's, there's a pretty long list of, of company names just in Chicago um, of companies that uh, uh, work in this space and have, have gone on huge hiring sprees and, um, you know, and, and, you know, part of the reason is that there is such a, it's not only fragmented among service providers like those, but, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of trucking companies in, you know, in the United States. And so there are, there's a lot of demand from a lot of different companies. Some of them are big, some are very, very small in terms, in terms of their fleet. And so, uh, you know, it, it's more of these companies are turning to uh, service providers and broker freight brokerages like this, and obviously you also see demand from actual companies, retailers that want to be able to track and and monitor very closely their their shipments. Um, so there's just a lot of demand from a lot of different stakeholders, and will we start to see um, you know a, a few big fish start to form here uh, um, in this space over time? What's really interesting to me is. What Danny is writing about these are these are almost tech companies, and from a job market standpoint, they hire um, a lot of you know young college graduates, young professionals in their twenties, um, college educated, and then um, and that's a you know obviously for downtown Chicago and the growth of the city that's really important because the they, the in the mayor's office and World Business Chicago has made this sector a priority. They really want to grow it. But in the world that I write about, 
we're talking about truck drivers and warehouse workers. And these are jobs for people who don't have a college education. And so we're working kind of on both ends of the spectrum here. And, you know, in the warehouse world, you know, the average warehouse worker may make 15, 20 bucks an hour. You can argue whether that's a, that's a, you know, a decent wage, but you know, those are, those are jobs for people who don't have a college education. So it's just interesting dichotomy between the two. Absolutely, it is. I mean, I've I've said many times, I think, to both of you and to Dennis Rodkin that I think it's so fascinating all the different topics that thread through real estate. It's so much more than it's it's about so much more than just buildings. There's you know so many human stories and job stories and economic stories that I think are so fascinating. It's true. All right. Well, now is the time where we shift to talking about things that are not on your beat. Danny, let's start with you. What stories? had your attention over the last week or so? We had a story on our website about Grubhub striking this deal with a, a Russian company, Yand, Yandex, the robots, the self-driving robots to deliver food to college campuses. I just, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the idea of, of self-driving as someone who is once sat in a self-driving, mostly self-driving Tesla uh, and and you experience it and it and it it, it is both thrilling and, very nerve wracking. And I, I wonder about how, I, I think it's just going to be really interesting to watch how, especially in delivery service, uh, how these types of vehicles, whether they're drones or, you know, the, what, what this, what the, what Grubhub wants to do here, which is, you know, these small robotic, uh, you know, things on the ground that are, are rolling through neighborhoods to deliver food. I just think that's, there's so many issues and, and, and potential liabilities and pitfalls that I think it's going to be really hard to navigate. Um, but, but at the same time, it's also just an, an incredible thing to watch because you see how this, this how this technology works and the possibilities of it are, are really wonderful. So that one I caught my eye and I was also uh pro publica had a story um, uh, explaining in a very, in a very understandable way, how owners of, uh, Pro sports teams use the massive increases in the uh, in, in franchise valuations to avoid taxes, um, which is, I think, on the surface sounds like, well, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like something that uh, pro sports team owners would would find a way to do. But it, it's it's actually has some really cool history with with Bill Veck and and some Chicago roots with the uh, uh, the way that the IRS treats um, professional sports franchises and and uh, the way that. Uh, you know, these, these owners that can investors who can buy these teams can write off the value of, of the teams, which have just been astronomically uh, rising over the past several years. So it's a really interesting read uh, worth going, going, uh, going into. And then the, the other one that I would say caught my eye was um, it's just something that I am watching and I'm, everyone is going to be watching certainly over the next uh, month or so, but the Olympics uh, it's, it's going to be held under emergency order, uh, this emergency order in, in Tokyo. So you know, they were talking about whether there was going to be actually some fans and some, you know, limited capacity of fans. Now there may be no fans at all. And I just think this is going to be, uh, it's still unclear, but I just think it's going to be a really uh, visible reminder here in a few weeks for a lot of people that are now quickly getting used to uh, normal life again here, that things are still pretty dire in some other parts of the world at the moment. Uh, so I think that that's just going to be a, a, a pretty pretty you know big big part of uh the our, our collective focus for the next six weeks with the olympics starting up here in just a couple of weeks 
Yeah, I have that that on my list too. I thought that was such an interesting story reading about the state of emergency declared in Japan. But also the Olympics start, don't forget, I believe on the same day that Jeff Bezos is going to space. <laughs> so that whole week is just going to be a weird news week, I think, in general. So there's that. That's uh, July 23rd, I think, is when it all happens. So we're everybody's got to be like, we all got to be ready for whatever happens that week. Albie, what, what have you got? Uh, so the one story that caught my eye was the news about Southport Lanes closing for good, which, um, you know, obviously Southport Lanes is a longtime Chicago institution, bowling alley and pool hall and bar uh, and, you know, survived prohibition. And it looked like there was a chance that it would reopen after the pandemic, but the, the owner just threw in the towel. So um, obviously a lot of people are saddened by that news. Uh, it was, I haven't been there in years, but, um, you know, the, the, it was a charming place. And, um, I think anyone who went bowling there, uh, loved the manual pin setters. That was just a classic. And, but if you're feeling nostalgic and you want to spend some money, you'll, you'll be able to bid on, um, on some of the fixtures, including the bowling alleys. And the manual setters. So there's an auction coming up. They're auctioning off everything, including the exterior sign, the bar, and the bowling alleys. And the, the auction starts on uh, July 13th, and it runs through the 20th. And, you know, I'll be really interested to see if, you know, some wealthy person from Winnetka who's doing a home renovation winds up, you know, paying a huge sum for those, for those bowling alleys to put them in their basement. Oh, I'm sure someone will. The thing is, though, is that with Southport Lanes, you could stick a dollar or a fiver down in the bowling ball and suddenly your score would get a lot better. <laughs> you and I, you would, as you're throwing that ball down there, suddenly like, I'm a great bowler as long as I tip the person setting the pins. <laughs> so they, they may have to hire somebody to keep that bowling score up. You must have spent more time there than I did. Uh, I don't know. I, all I know is that 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 was the rumor that if your if your bowling score is not good, start tipping. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> what else is on your list, Albie? Uh, you know, one other story that that caught my eye involved Rachel Nichols of ESPN and Maria Taylor. Um, they're they're two uh, hosts on ESPN, and there was a bit of a controversy. Nichols, who's white, was caught on. Um, I think she was speaking on the phone with a colleague uh, about uh, Maria Taylor, who's African-American, getting a position on, uh, I think she was, this is the host for the NBA uh, finals last year. Is that right, Danny? You know more about this stuff than yeah, I do. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I may be a little um, fuzzy on some of the details. So obviously this got out, there was coverage of it and, and, Nichols had to apologize and she was, um, I think she was demoted and not, uh, she's, she's not now on the sidelines of the NBA finals this year. She still has her show, but, um, you know, I just thought it was interesting because I think given what's, you know, what's transpired over the last year with the George Floyd protests and all the focus on, uh, diversity and equity and racial justice, I just I think that they're probably these kind of conversations are happening in workplaces across the country. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would be surprised to see more of more of this kind of stuff come out. 
you guys kind of you, you kind of took my list. I already met you know Danny. You mentioned the uh, the Olympics, and I had uh, the Bezos space flight because I'm so excited for one of the people going with him is a woman who trained in 1961. There was a women's program at NASA to uh, called Mercury. And then it was ended, and none of the women ever went to space. And this woman was the top of her class. Um, her name is Wally Funk, which is totally a cool name. And she's going to go with him, and she's 82 years old. And that just, like, makes me angry for her but excited for her at the same time that she had to wait that long. But I think that's an amazing story. Um, and another story that caught my eye is that there is a Da Vinci drawing, a rare drawing. It's a little bitty thing, but it is expected to get $16.5 million at auction soon. That's a whole heck of a lot of money. That's way more than any of the post-it doodles that I do on a on a conference call will ever fetch at auction. <laughs> but that, I thought that was kind of interesting too. So that's all I got. Well, thanks guys. Appreciate you chatting today. Thanks, Amy. Good chatting with you. Sure thing, Amy. Thanks. Coming up, Target backs off of Water Tower Place. The retailer had been in discussions to move into the Mag Mile Mall, but according to a report, those talks are now off. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Goose. Passengers finally have started to return to the CTA, especially downtown, but the agency is still nowhere near where it was pre-pandemic. According to the latest data, total CTA ridership is up 55% since the start of the year and 20% since just May 1st. Average weekday ridership has now passed the 600,000 mark, more than twice the 250,000 to 275,000 that it hit earlier in the pandemic. The CTA said in a statement, quote, ridership to and from the loop has seen the biggest gains of any area of the city as workers return to the office and downtown events and activities. The statement continued, since May 1st, rail ridership is up 53 percent, while ridership on bus routes primarily serving the loop was up 41 percent. Average weekday ridership in June 2019 was 1.52 million. With ridership now running 600,000 a day, the CTA isn't even halfway back to where it was. But officials say they're still continuing an extensive cleaning and disinfection program and still are asking even fully vaccinated people to wear masks. CTA President Dorval Carter said in a statement, quote, We're doing everything we can to roll out the welcome mat for our customers and reminding them that public transit is the most affordable, efficient and environmentally friendly way to get around. He also said that the CTA will continue to run a summertime fare promotion with day passes costing $5, a three-day pass $15 and a seven-day pass $20, all good for unlimited rides. Michelin-starred Spiaggia is closing permanently. The well-known Italian restaurant couldn't reach a deal to restructure its Streeterville lease and never reopened from the pandemic. Ali Marotti is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. The well-known Italian restaurant was on Michigan Avenue in Streeterville, near the intersection with Lakeshore Drive. Its sister restaurant, the more casual Cafe Spiaggia, also will not reopen. Spiaggia, which has maintained a Michelin star for some time, is known for churning out highly regarded chefs. One is Joe Flam, who won the 15th season of Bravo's Top Chef during his tenure at Spiaggia. 
He left in 2019 and just in April opened his own restaurant, Rosemary, in the Fulton Market District. The Adriatic restaurant serves Italian and Croatian food and has drawn much attention from diners. Reservations remain hard to come by there. Another is Sarah Grunberg, who opened the highly regarded West Loop Italian spot, Monteverde. After going more than two decades without a bond ratings upgrade, Illinois now has its second in just the past couple of weeks. In a statement, S&P Global Ratings says it has changed its take on Illinois debt from triple B minus to triple B. Both are considered lower medium investment grade, but the upgrade will help since Illinois had been just one level above junk status. The ratings agency had last upgraded Illinois debt in July of 1997 before a long series of downgrades that made Illinois the lowest ranked of the 50 states. S&P also upgraded debt of the Metropolitan Peer and Exposition Authority, which is dependent on state financing, and in the Build Illinois Capital Program, moving both from triple B to triple B+. S&P cited a reduction in short-term debt, improved economic conditions, and limits on state spending. But both have expressed concern about state pension debt continuing to rise. Target has reportedly ended discussions to open a store at Water Tower Place. Alderman Brian Hopkins of the Second Ward told the Chicago Tribune that the Minneapolis-based retail giant is no longer negotiating for space at the Mag Mile Mall. Target had discussions with Water Tower's owner, Brookfield Property Partners, about taking over space in the mall that was vacated several months ago by Macy's, formerly the property's largest tenant. And that prospect drew criticism in March from Cook County Treasurer Maria Pappas, who lives nearby and who argued that a Target store would cheapen the neighborhood. When asked why Target and Brookfield didn't reach a deal, Hopkins told the Tribune, quote, This is pure speculation, but I believe negative publicity was a factor. The Tribune also reported that Hopkins said he wasn't aware of any big leases in the works with new tenants at Water Tower, information that Brookfield has agreed to share with him. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to both of today's guests, Crane's reporters Danny Ecker and Albie Galoon. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.